0: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Robert Elmer. Robert is a communications specialist at Seattle Pacific University. He's a prolific author of over 50 books and today we're speaking to Robert about one of his most recent publications, an edited volume, Piercing Heaven, Prayers of the Puritans, just published by Lexham Press. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Congratulations on the book. It's a really beautiful production, uh, not only in the way it's put together, like so many of the Lexham Press books I've seen recently, but also in its content. Um, what's the background to this book, a most unusual topic, the topic of Puritan prayers?
1: Right. This was actually a longtime dream of my editor at Lexham Press uh, here in Bellingham, Washington. We're... Um, north of Seattle on the Canadian border, but he had long been a fan of the Valley of Vision um, volume, which is, of course, a classic popular book on the same subject here in the U.S., um, I I believe worldwide, um, though it's long been out of print. So my editor was also acquainted with the work that I had done in updating another spiritual classic, which I edited several years ago called Practicing God's Presence, And that's a modern-day language update of the practice of the presence of God by Brother Lawrence. So we got together, um, and I came to this with a background uh, in Christian devotional literature as well as in community journalism and editorial marketing as a novelist. Um, If that's an odd combination, it, it had been a passion of mine to reintroduce contemporary readers to classics like this, so that's where Piercing Heaven came from.
0: Fascinating. Now, tell us a little bit more, both about your interest in spirituality, but also about your your fiction writing. Okay.
1: Um, the fiction writing came well, some years ago when my own children were young, and they were reading, starting to read books, um, just picking up things from the library. And I looked at some of those books, and I thought, you know, maybe I could do something like this, too. And, uh, the, the stories came out of, um, stories my own grandmother and parents had told me under the, uh, occupation years in World War II. They're all from Denmark. So I put together a historical fiction, um, account of a family living in Denmark and how they dealt with hiding the Jews, uh, in 1943. And that became the first of a series of, of, uh, novels for young, uh, probably 8- to 12-year-olds, and uh, I enjoyed doing that for a number of years. It uh, grew into other series, of mostly historical-based, and then a few books for grown-ups um, along the way, and uh, the occasional nonfiction book as well. And I drew on my journalism background to, to start writing these, and I uh, got a lot of help along the way, and it was a, a, an enjoyable time.
0: So you've obviously written a great deal, Robert. I take it writing as part of your daily routine?
1: Writing is part of my job right now. Um, yes, it's. I'm, I'm a communication specialist at Seattle Pacific University, which is a, a Christian college in Seattle. So I am able to write articles for the alumni magazine and for marketing materials, a little bit of different kind of writing here. So I get to exercise different kinds of writing muscles along the way. But uh, a little bit of variety as well, and uh, I get to write websites, uh, brochures, all that marketing materials too.
0: And you've done a little bit of teaching fiction writing as well, haven't you, over the years?
1: That that came out of the um, the, the the historical fiction novels for for children. I was asked to uh, join a group that went around the United States and put on writing seminars for mostly um, small private schools, also homeschool groups. Um, uh, Occasionally, a public school would uh, ask us to do that. And uh, so I developed some workshops um, on fiction writing, plots, characters, um, writing essentials, and all that, and uh, had a a fun time um, teaching young kids doing that. Don't do it currently, but... um, if more of novels come along the way, that'd be another uh, fun fun avenue. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, along the way, previous to that, I'd, I'd received a, a teaching credential for elementary age, so I was able to put that to use. But mostly my uh, career has been in writing.
0: Wonderful. Uh, everyone's dream job, I think, that listens to this podcast. Um, so you've edited, you've edited this book of Puritan prayers. Um, as we... As we begin to think about the book, should we relate it to your Brother Lawrence project? Is it is it going to perform a similar kind of exercise, or is it intended to, to help people think about spirituality?
1: It um, I would say yes and no. Um, just in the way that the Brother Lawrence book was written, um, we took more of a, if, if anyone's familiar with the message version of the Bible. Uh, which is a paraphrased version. It it takes on that kind of a style. It's very contemporary, um, possibly over the top <laughs> contemporary. It's it's designed to to really bring um, an ancient set of letters into contemporary language, and I made efforts to do that. Piercing heaven is a little bit more, um, I would say, dialed back. Uh, it, I, I, I was careful not to take too many liberties with the language, merely uh, bringing it up to um, contemporary usage. And, uh, But the yes part of that answer is that, yes, they're both designed as devotional literature, so something that someone could pick up um, and enjoy in their prayer life, uh, enjoy just reading. And it's, it's designed, I think, with the, um, with the original writings to, they're, they're taken out of sermons uh, often, those prayers, which is where I was able to find most of, of the, the prayers. They're in written ser- sets of sermons. So they're, they're designed to encourage, um, Christians and non-Christians along the way in their prayer life.
0: So before we jump into the book itself, uh, Robert, w- would you read us one of your favorite prayers that you've included in this anthology? I can
1: do that. Yeah. Um, just leafing through the book here, I, I found a rather short one, and uh, we could talk later about how the book is is uh, organized. But this one here is is by a pastor named Richard Aline, and uh, it's entitled "Give Me a New Heart." Here's how it goes. Uh, my Lord, bring me to the place where you eat. Let me live before your face. Let me feel your smiles upon my heart. Let me love you and tell me you love me. Remember me. Take pity on me. Accept me. Care for me and then choose my condition, my home and my sources of sustenance. Give me a new heart, Lord, I am tired. You also are tired my wicked heart. Make it easier for yourself and for me by taking away this heart and giving me a better one. Lord, spread your sweet ointment. Let the smell of your garments refresh my soul. Let me taste and see. Let me see and I will taste that the Lord is gracious.
0: Amen. Hmm. Now, when we think about Puritans, uh, Robert, we we tend to have certain kinds of stereotypes in mind, don't we, of black, hatted, broad-brimmed Sour-faced scrutinizers of their peers. As you worked through the material in this book, how did your perception of Puritanism develop?
1: I think that was the biggest surprise for me because um, I think that's that is the common perception of what the the Puritans would be like. Here in the the states, we have um, a popular breakfast cereal um company called Quaker Oats, and the picture of the Quaker um, these days is smiling, but for many years I think was not, and I think that's the perception of these people, these Puritans. They wore these hats, and they were killjoys, and they were against everything. Now, I looked for those people in these writings when I was doing the research, and I could not find them. I found instead Puritan prayers that were in many instances energetic, emotional, heart-shaking, and they were neither casual nor perfunctory, but there were they were praises from a position of deep humility and they were taking every aspect of life into their prayers. They're others centered um for the most part, perhaps more so than a typical modern prayer, uh, um although they could also be deeply introspective. And I think these people were serious, yes, and they were seriously dedicated to their work, and their prayers reflected that in their all-in commitment. But these people were obviously on their knees, and they held back nothing back from their their sermons, um, and the length of which, if they were offered in a church setting in 2020, would probably scare off even the most uh, serious of churchgoers. But um, <laughs> I would, I looked for the 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 dourness, I looked for the seriousness, I looked for the the killjoy in, in these people. And um, perhaps it existed. Uh, perhaps there's a reason for that stereotype. But in my research, I could not find them.
0: Mm. So what does it mean then, to, to go back to your your, your subtitle there, Prayers, Prayers of the Puritans, what does it mean to pray like a Puritan?
1: I think it means that the... The prayers are, are so serious that they take in the the heart of of life um, These are people that that uh, I, I think did not go to church just on Sunday mornings they lived a faith that was vital and had um, meaning to them every day of the of the week so to pray like a Puritan I believe is to Expose yourself to a serious faith that encompasses more of life than just a casual, hey, I'm I'm headed to church for an hour and I'll be back and then we'll live our lives. But it was more of a lifetime commitment on a day-to-day basis and and praying like a Puritan is an emotional experience. It's a humbling experience. It's a um, a a deeper experience than the casual uh, reciting of 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 a written prayer so it, it's it's a in in that sense it's it's perhaps a little intimidating for a person of a modern faith who doesn't want to commit to that but these were very committed people and everything they saw they saw through the lens of their faith um, so they prayed that way
0: mm. now they're serious people and uh you've you've Drawn here on prayers from quite a number of different contributors, haven't you? Um, were there any any contributors whose work you especially admired?
1: You know, that's interesting. I I did not come into this project as um, a historian or or as an expert in theology. Even um, I came into it as an editor and a novelist, a storyteller. I was looking for stories i was looking for um people who who were telling uh, true stories from their lives so i i didn't have a favorite really i think during the course of the the research there were some that i found more compelling than others uh, certainly um but i i don't know that i actually developed um uh, a a real favorite along the way
0: um well robert of could you tell us a little bit about the about the contributors that you've drawn upon for this volume, um, how many where they come from anything about their background
1: right there are a number of contributors here that um, come from all spectrums of the theological uh, theology of the day, some of them a little more on the reform side, some of them a little less so um, I would say that um, there are – I think there were 16 contributors, all of them men. I, I did include one woman in here, um, and uh, she was a, a poet. I could, I could talk about that. There was, there were um, uh, 31 men, uh, actually, yeah, 31 men and, and, and one woman. Uh, a few of them are names that, that some people have heard about them, most of them probably not. I, I did compile a list of short bios in the back. There was there was people like uh, Richard Aline, who was a British pastor who traveled around England with the grandfather of John and Charles Wesley, but he did get in trouble for not adhering to the Conformity Act of 1662, which was a law designed, as you know, to standardize church ritual at the time, among other things. Um, so it was more of a, you do the prayer in this order, you follow the script, there's no deviation. And I suppose there were um, many pastors who lost their jobs at the time for not lining up with that act. Um, uh, Richard Baxter was another pastor from the mid-1600s who found himself in trouble with the law, and he wrote a couple of classics that are still available today. Um, Lewis Bailey was an earlier Puritan, uh, born in 1575. He was a rector of St. Matthew's Church in London. Then he was a bishop, and, and he was persecuted and put in prison for his uh, Puritan views. He wrote a book that deeply influenced John Bunyan, by the way. And John Bunyan himself, who wrote, of course, Pilgrim's Progress, spent 12 years in prison for his faith. Um, one of my favorites was uh, – you, you asked about uh, favorites there. My, my, one of my favorites was Robert Hawker, who was known for his passionate preaching and his heart for the poor. Uh, and in fact, he wrote what was called the Poor Man's Devotionals and Commentaries series, which was one of Charles Spurgeon's favorites. And uh, Spurgeon endorsed those books, loved those books. And the one woman that I mentioned um, in Piercing Heaven, her name was Anne Bradstreet, and she was um, a particular interest to American historians. She was the first poet to have her works published in the British North American colonies. And she came to America in 1630 from England with her Puritan husband and her father. And her first poems were actually published in England without her knowledge or consent. But they became very popular nonetheless. So they do cover a spectrum. Um, Most of these (coughs) um, Puritans wanted to keep the church pure from within. And they did pay a price for that. Some of them edged more toward a a separate separatist sentiment, or they found themselves there by default. Um, A few of them were able to bridge the gap and stay out of prison that way. But um, they were all very committed people, and they're worth remembering. I I hope um, my intention was that the prayers in this book would show us a little more of a window into the kind of people that they were, into the kind of Christians that they were. And um, I think in the United States, and I'm not sure how true it is in the UK, it's probably the same thing, uh, or Europe in general. I think it's fair to say that that we're quite untethered from our past. We don't think about what past generations believed very much, or why they believed it, to our detriment. Um, we seldom recognize the unseen values of even a spiritual heritage, and I think that's true in the church at large. Um, But that's part of American culture in particular. Old is bad, new is good. Uh, Each generation tends to believe that they're the first, Um, little knowing that the threads that, that tie them to language or culture or belief So this book is an attempt to shine a light on some very deep influences in our church. If only we would take a closer look. But at the same time, I'm also dedicated as an editor to readability in the belief that uh, the battle to uncover spiritual heritage is lost from the start if the language is unapproachable. So that was my number one task here is to produce a book that brought to life some of these people, and um, provided a bridge for modern readers, yet at the same time was approachable enough for uh, casual readers, lay readers. Um, It's not a scholarly book, but I wanted it to be something that is um, approachable and digestible and understandable. And along the way, people having read some of these prayers would perhaps find themselves understanding or identifying more with people who lived hundreds of years ago.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned editing methods there, Robert. Could you tell us a little bit more about, firstly, where you found the prayers, and secondly, what you did to them after you found them?
1: Okay. Well, I enjoyed the entire process. As an editor and a writer, the research was fascinating. I learned so much and i'm sure that this is no news to scholars in the field but as a layperson i was surprised and pleased to discover that so many 400-year-old 500-year-old manuscripts actually still existed and online um most of my research happened to be online i started out with a list of known puritan writers authors pastors bishops and Um, I I mentioned some of them before, but then we went down the list and we searched out some of the most obscure forgotten sermon and book manuscripts that we could find. And of course, many of them were scans of printed sermon collections, and some of them were very challenging to read, especially for me, given that I'm a, a, a lay editor. I'm not an expert in this field, but Um, Just looking at some of those scans, the faded print quality, the old script, the page-long sentences, the antiquated vocabulary, it was a challenge for me, but a good challenge. Uh, They have been, in many cases, scanned and forgotten, perhaps not so much by the scholarly world, but by the general public, of course. And that was my calling, not to present an interesting thesis or a scholarly premise, but to bridge the gap between the world of Puritan Christendom, and today's churchgoer. So practically speaking, and, and this is the news editor in me, uh, the storyteller, the novelist. Over the course of uh, better part of a year, uh, this was a weekend and evening job for me. Um, I combed through through these these sermons and, and writings, and I basic my approach was basically to search for keywords, and that that's what made it e- a little bit easier for me because we had our topic narrowed to prayers. I wasn't just searching for topics. Um, I was open to many topics. Whatever they were praying about was up for discovery. So it was a, it was a wonderful exercise, really. I prospected for words and phrases throughout these scanned documents. I just search "Amen," search "O oh, Lord," search "I pray," my prayer is um, a number of phrases like that, and it called for a good deal of searching. But it was a, a like I said, a fun exercise. So the prayers would pop up sometimes in the middle of a sermon that was that was written as a collection of sermons. Typically, um, if it were a pastor that had some kind of reputation, they would take the written sermons. And after the person's death, maybe, um, maybe a hundred years later, they would publish it. So we had a lot of these published sermon collections from the 1700s, 1800s that uh, were scanned. And then I'm going through them. And the sermon, the, the prayers would pop up sometimes in the middle of a sermon, sometimes at the end. Um, and they would be anywhere from a few sentences, an extemporaneous prayer, to prayers that span perhaps several pages. And then I would have to go through that and select portions out of which my assignment was to find the gems. So I did not differentiate in the research on the basis of a specific pastor, Or a specific author. And in other words, I I honestly had not enough initial awareness of who these people were. And I'm being completely honest here, but I was, I was looking for prayers. So I did not have a preconceived notion of their content, their potential depth, or even of the authors themselves. I I wasn't looking for specifics. Um, I was just seeing what I could find. And, and certainly I could, I could research and learn more about the sermon writers. Um, And this I did to, to some extent. Um, That was not my primary purpose Um, as a, I I suppose you can call me a prayer archaeologist of sorts. So ultimately, I I simply collected the prayers. I edited them. I carefully updated the language because some of it was um, language that we no longer use. And even though the words looked familiar, they're used in different ways. So I, I did a little research just to be careful and to make sure that I was faithfully reproducing what they were saying, um, but I took care not to make it sound um, so contemporary that it would be jarring. Um, I, I tried to give it a light touch in updating it just to reflect contemporary usage and uh, collected them. And then uh, along the way, the, the categories, um, over the course of several months, they began to I began to look for patterns in content. So the prayers in this book are arranged by topic in general because of the devotional purpose of the volume. So the the publisher intended that Christians might find the, the prayers both um, interesting and, and helpful, but even more as apt for use in personal study and, and prayer. So they serve as a window into the Puritan mind but they also serve as, I mentioned, I use the word bridge a lot. Uh, They serve as a bridge, um, as an approachable way to kind of compare contemporary spirituality with that of church leaders in the 17th century. So um, we arrange them by by category. So I'm looking here at the the beginning of the the book here, and we have the categories of um, prayers, help me to ask for help. Help me through my doubts. Help me through my time of sadness and suffering. So there'd be prayers there about when there are sickness and uh, praying for a dying father. Help me to endure temptation. Help me to rest in God's love. Um, I believe. Help my unbelief. Prepare my heart for the Lord's day and the Lord's table. Um, Help me to begin the day. Help me to live the day. Help me to close the day. Help me to praise and thank. Forgive my sins. Um, help me to give the gospel to others. So by category, these, when I was assembling the prayers, they would, um, we, we naturally herded them into those, those baskets. And, um, that's the way the book turned out. So our hope was that a contemporary parishioner, someone today might read the prayers and find value in what is common or with resonates with their situation today. And also perhaps as a way to, Um, fill in the gaps in their own spirituality and yeah go ahead
0: i think that's exactly what makes these prayers so valuable for scholars as well isn't it because so many puritans were opposed to writing down prayers but here we have them captured discovered and edited for us to make them as accessible uh, as as they possibly could be Robert, just as we come to the end of our time together, would you read us another one of the items you included in this anthology?
1: I'd be happy to do that. Here's one by a man named Isaac Ambrose, and uh, it's titled "Renew Me in Grace." and And we we came up with the titles of those prayers. They didn't specifically have titles on their on their prayers, but um, they sometimes accidentally slipped. Slip them in uh, by topic here. So here's how uh, Isaac Ambrose's prayer goes: Oh Lord, I have no graces by nature. I have no power to cleanse my own heart. I have defaced Your image, but I cannot repair it. I can say with the apostle that when I want to do well, evil is present with me, but I find no means to do what I desire. Oh, when will I be set free to do the work of God and run the race of His commands? If only I had hope, joy, and love. Lord, I've heard of your power. You call things that are not as if they were. If you desire it, you can work in me these graces just as gloriously you created them in Adam. Lord, I've also heard of your grace and truth. You are as faithful to keep as you are generous to make these precious promises. Your grace is unsearchable. Your word is purer than silver, seven times refined. Oh, make good your promises. Replenish
0: me with your grace. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. And thank you, Robert. We've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us what project you're working on next?
1: I am buried in coronavirus work right now. Um, At the university, we are like many universities uh, around the country, United States and around the world, uh, dealing um, with the plague and um, i know you were asking me about a writing project my writing projects are centered around um, uh the university's work right now and i'm fully uh, involved with that we're we're trying to figure out how to enable students to work remotely and so um, a lot of the writing i'm doing right now is is two students news about the corona crisis on our website um it, it's it's a it's a whole new world for us. So that is what my my focus is right now. I would like to write some more historical fiction in the future, um, again, for probably a younger audience. Um, and um, I, I have in mind a, uh, a biography of a Danish pastor who was killed during World War II for his anti-Nazi sentiments, um, a pastor named Kai Monk. And uh, I'm gathering up material slowly. That'll be a, a multi-year project, but uh, no, that I know of, a uh, biography has been written about him in English. Many have been written in Danish. Um, but since my background is that, um, that's a particular interest for me.
0: Mm, that sounds important on both counts. Um, thank you for coming on to the show today, Robert, and being willing to talk about Piercing Heaven. Thanks for your time and take care.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, you taking time. And it was uh,
0: enjoyable. It's a pleasure. Thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.